Good morning, everyone. So good to have you all here. Remember that at the end of the service, we can also visit and all that. So we'll, we'll, we'll continue this uh, in a little bit. Uh, but we are continuing in our series of messages from the second letter of Corinthians, Second Corinthians. I've titled the whole series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. And uh, that comes from 2 Corinthians itself. It's something Paul says, and he's talking about Jesus being the treasure, and we are those jars of clay. And clearly, uh, what's of value in that image is not the jar. It's the treasure inside. And so it, it, it's very much about learning to evaluate our lives in light of this treasure. Uh, so I, let me tell you just a little bit about my experience. It kind of came to mind as I was preparing the message this week. I'm remembering when my children were smaller. They would often ask us what our plans were for later that day or for the weekend or for the next week. And we would say, oh, we're planning on doing this. Let's, we'll do this or whatever. And then for whatever reason, we would do something else. Uh, situations would change. Plans would change. Maybe what we had said was just an idea, but we end up coming up with a different idea, whatever. We would often end up doing something different than what we had uh, said originally. This often led to the accusation that we had lied to them. You said we were going to do whatever, and you didn't, so you deceived us, you lied to us. Uh, as great parents, uh, we decided the solution was to never tell our children what we're doing ahead of time. I don't know that that quite solved everything, but uh, Paul faces a similar situation with the church in Corinth in the passage we're looking at today. I've, called, uh, I've titled the message today, God's Work, Our Amen. And we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. Let's start. And with this confidence, I previously wanted to come to you so that you might have a second grace and through you to pass on into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to return to you and to be sent by you to Judea. Uh, I think it's helpful to remember what we were looking at last week in the passage immediately before this one because Paul, in those verses uh, leading up to verse 15, he's talking about boasting and what is uh, the thing that we boast about? And, and Paul talks about his clean conscience that he has simply and honestly shared Christ with them. Uh, but he also talks about them and how in his great trial they have lifted him up in prayer and God has responded and delivered him from an, what seemed an impossible situation so that now uh, God is glorified through their intercession on his behalf and he says I am your cause of boasting the, re the thing you can be pride, pr proud of and boastful about is what God has done in my life because you prayed for me and you are my cause of boasting before the Lord in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This mutual connection they have and the way in which God has worked in both of their lives and worked through them to the benefit of the other uh, uh, and the, the boasting that they both are able to have in what God has done in all of these uh, areas. That's the confidence Paul's talking about. In this confidence, these were my plans, basically, and he lays out his plan. 
I might have mis, uh, I might have uh, misrepresented uh, the situation of the writing of 2 Corinthians. I think last week I might have said that Paul was writing from Ephesus, and he's actually not in Ephesus when he writes the letter. He's in Macedonia, but he has just finished the time of ministry that we were talking about last week and has begun to make his way to Corinth when he writes this letter. So he's not in the, physically in the city of Ephesus, but he has just departed after a great uh, upheaval in the city when the silversmiths all get together and uh, one of them, uh, I think it's Demetrius, tells them, man, so many people are coming to Christ, they're no longer buying our silver idols of Artemis, uh, Diana, the goddess that, that is so famous in this city you know the temple of Diana is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world it is the pride and joy of Ephesus and they are maligning our goddess and they are going to take away all of our business does that sound familiar uh, so that kind of fear-mongering, they, they bring a whole mob and they spend two hours chanting great is Diana of Ephesus and it looks like they're all going to get killed. I think that might be what Paul is talking about when he talks about that overwhelming moment when they thought they were, they were toast. And yet God has delivered him and he's begun to make his way to Corinth. And apparently it's a time of year where sailing across is not a good idea. It's better to go on land. So he travels up north uh, to Troas and ends up in Macedonia when he writes this letter to the church in Corinth and sends it ahead of himself. But... Uh, that was not the original plan. This journey by land up north and then coming south to Corinth, that was not the original plan. And apparently, uh, as we keep reading, and perhaps next week we'll get a little more into it, uh, Paul had had another visit to the church because later in the letter he talks about a third visit. I'm coming to you a third time. So somewhere between when he started the church and between he, when he's returning now on his way back, he has been to Corinth somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle of his Ephesian ministry, he took a break and probably sailed straight across uh, it was kind of a straight shot there, the Aegean Sea, and uh, had a visit, and he describes it as a painful visit. It was not pleasant. There was a problem. Apparently somebody in the church just outright offended and insulted Paul, and uh, it was not a good visit, and he returned to Ephesus and was... Uh, grieved by the visit and he wrote a letter he says with many tears I, I wrote a letter and it was a hard letter and uh, he sent it uh, with Titus in response to all of this and he was expecting Titus to return so apparently in that letter he sent them that previous letter that is now lost to us uh, he must have expressed to them these are my plans I want to come to you and that's what he describes I wanted to come to you provide you with a second grace in other words I wanted to come to you to bring you the kind of grace you experienced with me when I first visited and shared the gospel I wanted a, a, a visit that would build you up and provide grace to you and uh, my plan was I would go to you then I I would go north to Macedonia and gather the offering for the saints from those churches and then I would come back to you finish gathering your offering and then you guys would send me off to Jerusalem to deliver it that was the plan he had apparently expressed in this now lost letter but that isn't what happened 
Uh, Paul did not sail across. He is now traveling by foot north and is in Macedonia. And that visit that he had said he wanted to do never happened. Um, so uh, this is a pattern we see often in Paul's ministry. Uh, Paul had always was planning and uh, his plans were always I'm going to go here and I'm going to either share the gospel with people who don't know it or I'm going to go here to strengthen this congregation because there's a need there and I want to come and I want to give what I have to give to strengthen and help this congregation but that was what was driving Paul through his whole ministry was trying to reach people what we know from his second missionary journey his plan was to go to Ephesus but the spirit of Jesus would not let him. And he ended up north in Troas. And while he was in Troas, he had a, a dream one night of a Macedonian man saying, come and help us. And he didn't waste any time. Next morning, they were heading off to Macedonia. And what ended up happening on the second missionary journey was not a, an Ephesian ministry. He actually planted churches through Macedonia in the north, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, then headed south, preached in Athens, and ended up in Corinth, and spent a year and a half in Corinth starting the church in Corinth. That was not his original plan but God changed his plans uh, you know from when I preached Romans and that takes place later after 2nd Corinthians he writes Romans uh, he's finally made it to Corinth and from Corinth he writes the letter to the Romans and he says here's my plan I'm gonna go to Jerusalem drop off the offering then I'm coming back to you guys and you guys are gonna send me to Spain that was his plan it never happened so Paul was constantly, uh, had a, a burden and a drive to, to go and help and share the gospel and do this. But constantly we see this pattern in his ministry that what he plans and what God ends up doing uh, end up being very different things. God finally brought Paul to Ephesus. That's the ministry he's just wrapped up and is heading north after two and a half years of powerful ministry in Ephesus. As he's heading back, he writes this letter. But while he was in Ephesus, he had written another letter and apparently said, I'm going to come visit you and then I'll go north and all this. Well, he's never come. He never showed up. What's going on? Let's keep reading. Verse 17. Given that this was my plan, was I vacillating? Or is what I am planning being planned according to the flesh so that there should be in me both yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word toward you is not both yes and no. So what's happened? Uh, there's been this uh, turmoil and uh, Paul sent this harsh letter. He's, he hasn't heard back from Titus. And he's promised, I'm coming back. He hasn't made it back. And what's happened in the interim in Corinth? Well, people are in, interpreting what's going on with Paul. Well, Paul said he's coming, but there's no Paul here. I guess he likes the people in Ephesus better than he likes us. I guess the ministry there is more important to Paul than us. And the problems we're facing are not uh, as concerning to him as he seems to say they are. Maybe God, Paul is just flaky. Maybe he just says whatever and then who knows, he never follows through on anything. Uh, he's vacillating. He's got one foot on, on both sides of, of the thing and, and cannot make up his mind so that you can't trust a thing Paul says. He may say yes, but he really means no. He's not going to do it at all. 
Paul appeals not to his own faithfulness, but to God's faithfulness. As God is faithful, by the very faithfulness of God, let me assure you that what we have said to you is not duplicitous. We did not say yes when we meant no. We did not mislead you. We did not try to make you think something other than what is simply the bare honest truth. And perhaps that explains why 2 Corinthians is such a brutally honest letter on Paul's part. He is laying his heart open and hiding nothing from the Corinthians. We've already seen that in the very opening of the letter. There is no pretense in this letter. Paul is just honestly sharing his heart with the Corinthian believers and he's saying, I have never tried to mislead anybody. I have never said I meant, uh, said this thing when I really meant another. But that's been the accusation. Paul said he wanted to come, but he must not really want to because he didn't. He must not really love us as much as he says he loves us because if he did, he'd be here. strikes me that this is a continuing problem in the life of the church. Some of us believe we have the ministry of reading minds. And we do not only interpret the words of another person, we don't only interpret the actions, we interpret the intent. I have found that when I engage in that kind of speculation, for whatever reason, I tend to go dark. I tend to assume the worst. I tend to read the worst possible intentions into what's going on in the heart of another person. I don't know why that is, that, that we have this tendency to be so unkind to one another when we're evaluating motive and intent. And yeah, and sometimes it gets to the point, it doesn't matter what the person is saying to me, I've already decided they don't really mean it. I've determined in my heart what's going on in their heart. That's exactly what Paul is facing here. There are people who are interpreting his actions and words and assigning motives to them that are not simply, simply not true. Paul loves the Corinthians dearly. And when he said, I want to come to see you, he meant, I want to come to see you. And the only reason he hadn't was that circumstances had arisen that were beyond his control and made it impossible for him to do it at the moment he had planned originally to do it. So that he's not able to sail across and get there quick. He's going to have to do it backwards. He's going to come around north and travel by land until he gets there. But that doesn't mean he's planning according to the flesh. That's Paul's shorthand, by the way, for doing things as mere humans. If we take God out of the equation and just operate based on what we can do on our own, that is what Paul means by the flesh. Am I planning according to the flesh? And it could, you could say that, right? Because he gets it wrong so many times. Every time he plans one thing, God ends up doing another. Does that mean he's not praying? He's not asking God to guide him? Well, I would argue against that interpretation of events because every time God intervenes and frustrates Paul's plans, he immediately jumps on to whatever God is doing. God was, uh, Paul was never fighting God. 
He was never saying, no, this is my plan, I'm going to stick to it. But he was prayerfully making plans and very carefully listening to God and making every adjustment he had to do on the fly because he honestly was pursuing whatever God was calling him to do. So he was making plans in the Spirit. It's just that it's the nature of us as finite beings to whom God has not revealed everything yet that we often make mistakes in judgment. We, we think this is what we need to do and God has to correct our course. That's why we continue to pray because we know we haven't figured it out. We need guidance every day. So Paul's change of plans is not an indication that he's operating out of the flesh, that he's just making plans and not including God in them. And he's not duplicitous. He's not saying yes when he means no. It's just impossible for us as uh, creatures who do not control the universe to say anything and assure that it's going to happen exactly as we said it was going to happen, even when we fully intend it. Let's keep reading verse 19. For God's Son, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but it has always been yes in him, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. <clears throat> Paul tries to reorient his readers. And now the Corinthians have this problem. They have a tendency to do a leader worship. He's already addressed this in his first letter. Right? Uh, some of you say, I'm of Paul. And some of you say, no, I'm of Apollos. And some of you say, oh, I'm of Cephas. And by the way, that gives you a hint to their uh, interest because that's not even the Greek Peter. It's the Aramaic version, Cephas. Uh, so these are kind of maybe Judaizer types, uh, people who are very into the Hebrew uh, mindset. Uh, and they're, they're identifying not as uh, people belonging to Christ as part of one body, but as factions and followers of a particular figure. They are Paulites or Apollosites or Cephasites. And Paul has to correct that. He's continuing to try to redirect them. Yes, all this obsession with Paul and what Paul said he's going to do and whether he did it or didn't do it exactly as he planned to do it. Uh, and then all the intent, uh, observations and interest in interpreting and, and assigning motives and, and all the debate that's going on in Corinth about Paul right now. And Paul's trying to remind them, it's not about me. Who did we preach when we were among you? Did I show up and say, hey, I'm Paul. I want to start a new school of philosophy. I want to, it, we're going to be, it's going to be Paulism. And let me tell you all about it. No. He says the same thing for Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, all three of us. What All we were telling you about when we were in Corinth was God's son, Jesus, the promised Messiah. Now, with him, there's no yes and no. We don't say one thing and it's another. Jesus doesn't promise one thing and then deliver something different. No, it's always been yes in him. There's no duplicity in the gospel. There's no uh, uh, contradiction or, or deception in the gospel. 
Every one of God's promises is yes in him. The Old Testament is an open question. We have the law of Moses, which lays out for us. Uh, God says, let me show you, just in, in terms of the culture you find yourself in right now, let me give you a series of commandments to com convey to you uh, how you should be living as human beings. And what the law serves, uh, the purpose the law serves for us is not to help us be perfect. It can't do that. But it helps us recognize that we're not perfect. Because when God says don't covet, that is something you should not do. And I am coveting. Then I become aware that I have a problem. I might not have noticed without God's law. But God's law makes the problem very evident. The problem is God's law has no solution for the problem. So in the Old Testament, we have not just the law, not just this is the standard you have failed to live up to, but there's also the promise that God is going to send somebody, a Savior, who is going to save the world who is going to put an end to the problem of sin once and for all. Jesus is the one who brings all of God's promises to fulfillment. When Jesus came and lived this perfect life and communicated the message God intended to be communicated to us in the flesh and uh, culminated the communication of that message by going to the cross and giving his very body and life on the cross for the sin of the world and then rising victorious over sin and death on the third day when Jesus accomplished all of that all of God's promises become a firm yes they're kept God delivers on every single one of them so forget about Paul and how reliable or not he might be in terms of what he communicates to you about his intentions. Is that what you're relying on? For the health of your church and your own spiritual walk with Christ? Is that what you're worried about? That's not what I preached when I came the first time to you. I told you, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the one who does not fail ever. If he says yes, it is yes. Because with Jesus, unlike with me, when God says yes, he knows what's going to happen before it even happens. He has all the power to make it happen. And he has perfect knowledge of everything that could possibly be known on the subject. When God says yes, it's a very different thing than when I say yes. In God, yes is yes, and that's the end of it. There's no doubt. There's no circumstance that's ever going to change it. There's no unforeseen situation that is going to cause God to change what he has said. When God says yes, that's it. That's the end of the matter. So don't, don't rely on me, Paul's saying. Rely on Christ whom we preached to you. He's the yes in every circumstance. Let's finish verse 20. So also through him we give the amen, bringing glory to God through us. But the one who strengthens us with you in Christ, the one who has anointed us, is God, who also sealed us and gave us the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts.
So God's the one. Paul's saying, I'm not the one who's doing the work. I'm not the one you need to be looking to. Christ is the one. What do we do? If, if Christ is the one doing the work, then what are we doing? And Paul says, this is what we're doing. God has enabled us participation in what he is doing so that we can add our amen to his work. Amen is that Hebrew word that means so be it. And it was used in, by the Hebrews the way we use it in church today. It's a way of uh, expressing agreement. Somebody else prays. When they finish their pray, prayer, we all say amen. As in, I agree with what you have just said to God and I want to add my heart to yours in lifting this prayer to God. Amen. Through God who is the one who is faithful through God, who is keeping his promises and doing the work he has promised among us. What we do is not that work itself. We are the ones who say the amen to it. And through us, through this act of giving the amen, of expressing our celebration and agreement with God and, and the wonderful things he is doing, then we are bringing glory to God, which is what we're supposed to be doing in all of this, not bringing glory to ourselves. A lot of times in ministry, people get this absolutely wrong. And the great things God is doing become not things to uh, raise praises to God and glory to God about, but they become motives of personal pride. I am the great prophet. Come to me if you want to know what God has to say. I am the great apostle. I am the one who guides the churches. I am the great this or that. Come look at me, all the wonderful things. And people are misappropriating the glory that belongs to God alone. It's not about us. It's about the God in whom every promise becomes yes. We give the amen. And the glory from us goes to God. It doesn't come to us. The one who strengthens us with you. Paul has just described a moment where he was so overwhelmed, so utterly beyond his strength. He despaired of living. He's not being hyperbolic. He's just flat out telling him, guys, this is how I felt. I, 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 I couldn't face it. It was too much. But because the people in Corinth are lifting him up in prayer, Paul says, God strengthens us with you in Christ. God gave us the strength to keep on pressing forward when it seemed like there was no point. And God used you. And in Christ, God has sustained us and strengthened us to continue doing this. Even when we felt we were utterly at the end of our strength. God is the one who anointed us. And I think that us includes the Corinthians. That's an interesting term there because anointing in the, in the Old Testament was something you did for kings, for priests, and for prophets. So you would guess that a very limited number of people would ever experience being anointed. And yet he's describing this as something God's doing just in general 
with us. And I think it is true that God has so worked in our lives that because Christ reigns and he invites us to participate with him in his governance over all of creation, we are kings and queens with Christ. We are anointed as royalty. We are a royal priesthood. So we also are priests, even though Jesus is the great high priest and perfect mediator between sinful man and holy righteous God. We, every moment we share about Christ, every time we share the gospel and plead with people, be reconciled to God, we become priests who are mediating between God and sinful humankind. And as we pray to God for the lost around us, we continue to operate as priests who are mediating before God on behalf of the rest of humankind. We are prophets. God has given us a word to share. We each have a unique witness to bear of Christ and his activity in our lives. And we have been given a message for the world. And we have a word from God to share. We have all been anointed by God. This isn't something people give to each other. This is something God gives to everyone when we come to him in faith. And what has God done? He has sealed us and gave us the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, uh, this is, you've seen movies of antiquity where they would melt some wax and press a seal into it. That seal is unique and it, it, it connects whatever is sealed with the owner of that seal. Uh, so that that thing uh, is of that person. If you're sending a letter and you seal it with your seal, that's a way of saying, these are my words, this is my communication. What God is doing through us, uh, it's the image Paul paints of this is we are that letter that it has, bears the seal of God, and that seal is the Holy Spirit within us. That is what means that the, the thing we are sharing, the, the, the ministry, the service, the prayers, the whatever it is that we are sharing is not just humans doing things. It is the very work of God himself through us. We are his letters to the world. And the Spirit is described also, not just as a seal, but as the down payment. Any of you bought a home? I'm sure some of you have. When you go to buy a home, they ask you to give a deposit, right? Generally 20% of the value of the house. And the reason you give them all that money is that you're trying to convince the bank that you're gonna pay the rest of it, right? You give that as a guarantee that you are going to pay that loan and you are going to pay the full price of that house. That's what a down payment is meant to signal. Your commitment to buy the thing that you have said you're going to buy. Now, Paul has just been talking about how all of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. The promises of forgiveness of sins, of 
transformation so that we are free not only from the penalty of sin but the very presence of sin. We are transformed into glory so that we are actually glorious as God is. Not selfish and tainted but pure and righteous. He has promised eternal life with him. Now, the things I've described, you might say, well, if those are the promises, they haven't quite been delivered yet, right? Jesus promises to heal every wound, to, to wipe away every tear. I'm still crying. The wounds keep coming. I'm still hurting. I'm still afflicted. Did Jesus not keep his promise? Uh, he's promised to free me, not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. But I still struggle with sin. My heart continues to lean toward what it shouldn't, and I continue to do the things that I do not want to do. Does that mean Jesus is not fulfilling his promises? And he's promised eternal life, but uh, my body gets worse and worse. I'm closer to the grave every day, and this thing is not getting better. It's just getting worse. And eventually, I'm sure what's going to happen to me is what's happened to everybody else who I've observed. I'm going to kick the bucket. I'm going to die. Where is this eternal, glorious life? That's why we have a down payment. Because God wants us to know that he's going to deliver the full payment on what he has promised. He has promised all of this. There will come a day when there will be no more cause for sorrow. There will come a day when we stop hurting one another. There will come a day when God heals Every wound, even the deepest wounds on your soul. Now we've begun to taste that. God's begun the work. It's not like he hasn't already started the healing. It's not like he hasn't already started the transformation. And yes, one day I will sin no more. One day, there will come a day where I will have sinned the last sin I will ever sin. It's not come yet. But I can see our, my progression toward that as God continues to convict me of sin and through the years grants me the grace of victory in area after area of my life. I see where we're going. I'm not there yet. But I have the Holy Spirit as the promise that God is going to finish what he started. He's not going to drop it halfway. And yes, my body is deteriorating and it will one day fail me completely. It doesn't matter. God has promised he will keep the promise. And Jesus explained how that's going to work. It's called resurrection. There will be a day when we will be raised and transformed into eternal glory. Right now we have the down payment and the beginnings of the experience of that. Something I want to mention about this is uh, I think this is the heart uh, 
of the idea of the perseverance of the saints. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but the idea being that if you have come to genuine saving faith in Jesus and God has responded to that faith by giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit and has sealed you with his spirit, then God is never going to remove his spirit from you. That spirit is going to stay until the fullness of redemption is completed in you. I believe that's true. I believe that's the way the Bible describes it. Salvation is a work of Christ, not a work of us. And we are saved only by the grace of Christ. So uh, what do we do then with sinning? Does that mean we just do anything and everything when we're living our life as Christians? Because if I've already said I believe in Jesus, then the Spirit is going to save me forever, so who cares what I do? Well, there are a couple of things about that. The New Testament is full of warnings against people who think they're in Christ but aren't. Just saying you're a Christian, just being baptized, just making a public profession of faith, walking the aisle, that does not guarantee that what's really happening in your heart is surrender to Christ. You may be going through all the external motions of Christian life, but in your heart you really have not surrendered to God, and God has never given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. You simply have a religious experience of, of life in the church. There's, uh, there are very strong warnings in the Bible against that. The book of Hebrews is filled with them. Um, another thing is, even if you are genuinely saved, you genuinely believe in Jesus, uh, and you say, okay, I've received the Holy Spirit, but I'm just not going to work on this relationship. I don't care about my relationship with God. He's going to save me anyway in the end. I'll just, I'll just coast uh, through to eternity. I'll, I'll take the easy route. Uh, I think that can happen. And we can do our Christian life, as Paul would describe it, in the flesh. Not a life governed by the Spirit of God, but a life lived tragically as though God weren't really even a part of our life. It's possible, I think, for a person who is saved to live life that way. Paul describes ministry, and he talks about different people doing ministry, and some people build with straw and wood. Some people build with silver and gold and precious stones. He says, one day will come when fire will determine the worth of what you've done. So what happens if you're one of those Christians who was just coasting? You, were just, you weren't in God. You were doing it all on your own strength and merits and doing your own life your own way. Then uh, what will happen is everything you did is going to burn up to nothing. You will have contributed nothing to eternity. Your life will, been a, will have been a waste of time. But Paul says, they will be saved, but as through fire. So you don't, God doesn't renege on his promise to save you, but you've wasted this life. Others build with silver and gold and precious stones, and we invest our lives in things that are going to be with us into eternity. So what's the advantage? Well, the advantage isn't you're going to be saved or not saved. The advantage is there are things God wants to save you of right now. 
And every time we choose to ignore God or disobey Him, we are losing a grace He had for us and instead embracing a curse He did not want for us. Many times we suffer as Christians not for doing the good, but because we've done the bad we shouldn't do, and we rightly are suffering for it because sin has consequences. So don't ever assume that once saved, always saved means that sin does not destroy. It'll still destroy relationships in your life. It'll still tear up your marriage. It'll still ravage your life here on earth. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting a simple gospel where uh, you've believed in Jesus and just do whatever. It's all going to pl- pl- play out in the end the same way. No, it makes a very big difference how you choose to walk your walk with Christ. I don't know about you. I don't want to miss any of it. I don't want to wait for heaven. I want as much of it now as I can get. Why settle for less? when Christ has put it before us. So what can we learn from Paul's changed plans, the accusation he faced of being flaky, and his response to the whole thing? I think this passage is a reminder of where our focus has to be kept. Great leaders in the church can be a blessing if they allow God to use their lives for the good of others. I'm not saying God doesn't use people to bless us. I think he does. But we have to always remember that God is the one doing the work. The only people who become useful are those willing to surrender to God. Even the best leader, though, is going to fall short. Not necessarily because they mean to, but because they are powerless to deliver everything we need. And to pretend otherwise is idolatry. To expect a human to provide us with what God alone can provide is idolatry. So rather than focus on other Christians complaining that they don't fully meet our perceived needs, we have to learn to turn our eyes to God instead who never fails, who is always faithful. He has empowered us. He has commissioned us, anointed us for kingdom work. And if we will open ourselves up to him, he's going to do his work among us. And we will be able to bring him glory as we provide all we have to give. A hearty amen. I don't know how this word has struck you this morning. Maybe as a Christian, you've been reminded that God needs to be the focus and you've been obsessing about leaders or this or that figure in your life or in the church. And you need to tell God, God, I'm sorry. I have let my eyes fixate on somebody other than you and I apologize for that idolatry. God, bring my heart back to you alone. Maybe you've been reminded through Paul's example uh, of this tendency we have of trying to pretend we're God and we can actually uh, dictate what the motives are of other believers. And we have done so unkindly. 
and have assumed things we had no possible way of knowing because our wicked hearts lean us in that direction and you want to come before God and say God forgive me for pretending to be you and assuming I had the right to pass this kind of judgment on my brothers and sisters if that's you this morning then come and repent maybe you realize today that this sealing of the Spirit of God this spirit that empowers and commissions us to do the work of God that that's just not ever happened in your life because you may be in church but you have never surrendered your heart to Jesus if that's you this morning stop fighting give him all you've got and he will give you all he's got let me tell you you're not the one who's going to lose out in that exchange Whatever God lays on your heart this morning, uh, we're going to stand now. We have people who are going to help us here at the front. If you'll come forward, and they'll be here at either side of the stage. Come and take their hands. Share with them briefly what God has put on your heart this morning. And let them pray for you and encourage you as together we draw near to Christ. Come while we sing.